Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Every family has a great family story to tell. My favourite, well, okay, my second favourite, but that's for another day. It dates back to 1938. My grandfather, also called Jack, and my nana, Hilda, were living together in North London. They were just married in their late 20s, no kids yet. And my granddad had fallen out with his father because, actually, wait, my mum tells this way better. Mum? Because his father didn't agree with him getting married, he punched him on the nose, (gasps) refused to give him any more than pocket money. So he left his father's employment and he joined a film distribution company. And also, a lot of Jewish people worked for the film distribution companies. So this is highly relevant. It was 1938, remember, and Hitler was cranking up his persecution of Jewish people in Eastern Europe. My grandfather and his colleagues were Jewish, and they were worried. And so many of his... Uh, workmates got together to sponsor Jewish children to come to the country. I don't know if they themselves sponsored a whole train or what the numbers were involved, but they had to find sponsors who were willing to put up quite a lot of money and agree to look after the child, possibly until they were 16. And because he had a car, my father was delegated to go to the station, which I imagine was Liverpool Street Station, to meet uh, this train. And he'd got a list of children and a list of people who had agreed to take them in. So my father had a, a family to deliver to somewhere in the east end of London. And it should have been two boys and a girl. But when it came to it, there were two boys of about 12 and 10, a little girl of about five, and a baby, quite a small baby, a year or under a year, who'd presumably just been added in at the last minute. Added in at the last minute. So in other words, at a chaotic railway station in Nazi-controlled Eastern Europe, with a crowded train full of frightened children preparing to depart for a foreign land, a frantic mother had bundled her newborn baby into the arms of a sibling, just as the train pulled away. Can you even imagine? 
so my father took the two boys and the girl to where they were supposed to go and then ended up phoning my mother and saying, look, there's a baby that's not been accounted for. What should we do? And of course, mummy said, bring her home. And of course, she was filthy and hungry. And oh, anyway, my mother looked after her. Maybe the next day or the day after, my father said, I'm, I'm really bothered about the rest of that family because I wasn't happy with the situation. I left them in. I'm going to go back and check on them. So he went back and was horrified to find they hadn't even been washed. So he brought them all back to my mother and then they had to try and decide what they would do. My grandparents now had not one unaccounted for child, but four, an entire family. They were a young couple living in a small rented flat near Finsbury Park. They started ringing their own family for help. Past disagreements went out the window my great-grandfather took the older girl in. Another family member took the two boys. My grandmother kept the baby for a year or so until she became pregnant herself and was evacuated out of London. The baby, Anna, went to her sister-in-law. These kids all just became part of the family. Never met those two boys, but I did grow up knowing the two girls. I was born in 1945 and they were part of my childhood. This was wartime, and the way my mum tells it, nobody really thought twice about any of this. You just did what you had to do. Well, they couldn't, they just couldn't think of children being left without someone to look after them and love them. So, yeah, I think, it, I think most people would have said yes, really. My mum was telling me this story again, last week at her home in Marple, the small town just outside Stockport where I grew up, 86 years after all of that happened. Everyone involved in that story, apart from my mum, has long since passed away. But the rhythms of history don't change much. And a couple of years ago, the cycle came round again. Today at one, we're live in Ukraine as Russia invades. Refugee agencies are warning that millions of Ukrainians could be on the move to escape the fighting, heading for the border with neighbouring countries. Of course we're going to take uh, refugees. This country's had a, uh, a historic and proud role in, uh, in taking refugees. The scheme will allow Ukrainians with no family ties to the UK to be sponsored by individuals or organisations who can offer them a home. In the early months of 2022, Tens of thousands of refugees from Ukraine flocked into Britain. A country which has spent the past decade arguing bitterly with itself about immigration took one swift look at what Vladimir Putin was doing and threw open its doors. The challenges we faced in 2022 were not so different from 1938. Where would these people live? Who'd look after them? Could the system cope with such a rapid influx? And what would life be like here for a desperate people fleeing their homeland and leaving their loved ones behind? The British political system is not exactly renowned for its fleet-footedness or its ability to think up solutions on the hoof. Could we really pull this off? Surprisingly, to me anyway, Many of the answers to these questions can be found right here in Marple, where my mum and my dad still live. 
one little town, with one foot in Greater Manchester and the other in the Peak District, took in dozens of Ukrainian refugees in 2022. For the past couple of years, they've been living in people's homes, riding on the buses, working in local businesses, essentially becoming part of the Marple community. So with the anniversary of the invasion now upon us, I thought this week we'd get out of Westminster and find out what a modern-day refugee crisis actually looks like through the lens of one small town. I've been talking to the families who hosted refugees. And, and Vika insisted on doing most of the cooking. Did she? She said, it is my therapy, mm. makes me feel normal. To the community organisers who helped them to settle. And I was really lucky because I got a few teachers that teach English as a second language that were available and offered to come and help. Right, for free. For free. To the government minister who dreamed up the whole scheme. Michael Gove and I had the ear of Boris Johnson. He was determined that this would happen and therefore made it clear that I got the resources that I needed to do it. And to the Ukrainians themselves who've made Britain their home. I like your country. Well, that's I nice like thing. your government. Mm. I like your people. I like weather. Weather? Are you sure? Yes, I, I like, like weather. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard. And this week on Westminster Insider, I'm taking you home to Marple to see how the British people opened their arms to Ukraine and whether there's lessons we in Westminster can learn from how this whole amazing story has played out. 24th of February, 2022. It's a day the history books will not forget. The Russian invasion was launched with terrifying speed and against a wide range of targets right across the country. Russia overnight launched its long-anticipated attack on Ukraine, striking military posts across the country. The Ukrainians woke up to find themselves plunged into the midst of all explosions and air raid sirens ringing out here in Kyiv and cities across this country. For millions of Ukrainians watching on with disbelief, the horror of what had been unleashed was only just becoming clear. So we could hear lots of bombs. Two kilometres uh, from us, there was a, a bomb, actually. And uh, we, we're living in the centre of, of the city, and it's killed some of the people. And Yeah, some of the bombs are bust in our Yes, it's uh, our city. window. Tuk, 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 tuk. Shaking, furniture shaking, everything shaking. It's terrible. Every night, sleeping, listening bomb. Nearby. This is Katya and her mother, Marina. They were living in their new apartment in their home city of Mykolaiv in southern Ukraine, an hour or so north from Kherson. Before war, we recently moved to the new apartment. Yeah. Brand new. Oh, <laughs> yes. Wow. I we lived there only for six months. All life working because I have a dream, bought a new apartment and make it Everything good. I bought new furniture and goodbye my new apartment. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes, it's not good. It's not good. I, I pray my apartment may be finished war and maybe 
it's good. Mm. It stayed the stay it's there. It's still there. Who knows, right? Yeah. Mm. We moved there, and my mom told me the weird thing. She sometimes have a kind of predictions. Oh really? I would say mm-hmm. yeah. She can sometimes see the future, and she told me one weird thing: we're not going to live here for long. Wow. And oh, and it was so weird, and it was like a so quick you didn't even process it but actually after six months it's, it's all started and mm-hmm. yeah moved out we're sitting in Katia and marina's new flat a small one-bedroom apartment in a little town just down the valley from marple these two are amazing Katia is 16 and has just started college here in england she has red highlights in her hair an earring halfway up her left ear she didn't speak a word of English when she arrived here. Two years later, she's more or less fluent and now studying A-levels and B-techs. She helps her mother with the language. Uh, with Katya, not, uh, not fighting. Mm-hmm. Marina is closer to my age. Her English is less good, but she makes up for it through sheer force of personality. Okay, fine. You, you won't try everything. Yeah, I will try everything. It looks okay, fantastic and I'm hungry. I'm... She's one of those people who's always the biggest character in the room. She now works in a local restaurant. And when I arrive for the interview, she's cooked us a banquet. Big bowls of hot steaming borscht, plates of breads and cold meats, piles of steaming handmade dumplings and smoked fish. This is so kind of you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I must be uh, shared our tradition. <laughs> Her husband is a soldier back in Ukraine. They had no choice but to leave him behind. I was scared. <laughs> and yeah. I obviously, I didn't want to stay there in a damaged city. And I wanted to have my future. And I'm in that age where I want to have my education. Mm. Not just sitting at home and be in the fear. So I was chatting with my father and uh, discussing where we can go. Uh, and then I thought, I want to learn English. So I found special websites where you can find uh, the, the hosts and I read about all about the program. But you arranged it all, actually. It was your idea and your research. Yeah. How did you, what did you think, Marina, when you heard? <laughs> it's a surprise for me. It's not carry uh, on. So she, she uh, it's not her brought me here, it's me brought her with me. <laughs> it's a surprise for me, because I never learn in English, never. I know it's five words, it's, uh, it's shock for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we came here without any English. I was knowing a couple of phrases and she didn't know anything, like five words and that's it. Katya and Marina were among the early beneficiaries of the UK's Homes for Ukraine programme. Within days of the war breaking out, then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson, with characteristic um, boldness, had promised Britain would do whatever it takes to help those in need. Now he just needed a minister who could actually make it happen. All it took was one awkward phone call. Listeners must bear in mind that I wasn't exactly flavour of the month with Boris Johnson in having taken the whip off me two years prior to that over Brexit. This is Richard Harrington, the former Tory MP for Watford. An old friend of Ken Clark, he was one of those anti-no-deal Tory MPs who got booted out of the party by Boris Johnson at the height of the Brexit wars. Still, this was a crisis. And past disagreements go out the window. 
Boris had made a pledge to my good friend Vladimir. I promised him I'm going to take an unlimited number of refugees. And I will do no more Boris impressions, Jack, because you're probably going to terminate my (laughs) role on this podcast now. But um, the reality was they they had made a promise. Other countries were opening up to Ukrainian refugees. And the advice he received was that we didn't have any accommodation um, and that the visa situation was very difficult because it was taking far too long. And the existing schemes weren't ever meant for this kind of volume. I did for David Cameron in 2015, the Syrian refugee programme. I was a minister in three departments and I developed this idea of this cross-government stuff. And Michael Gove, I think it was Michael, had remembered I'd done the Syrian programme, therefore had some experience on that. So I was called one Friday evening at 10.30 at night. Um, There were kids screaming in the background. But um, he did ask me if I would take this job on to do it. And I said yes. And the reason I said yes was because I three of my four grandparents were basically refugees. They weren't all Ukrainian, but basically refugees from the Tsar. So, I mean, what's different, really? I shouldn't, I'm not making a joke of it, but, you know, there was a certain uh, emotional aspect to it as well. And uh, so I agreed to do it. So it was last minute. Harrington, no longer an MP was appointed to the House of Lords so that he could immediately take up the role of Minister for Refugees. He got straight to work. I went into Downing Street on the Monday morning at 7.30 and the Hose for Ukraine thing was a lateral thinking kind of thing. Um, I'd had some minor experience of this because when I did the Syrian programme, I'd learnt that in Canada they had what's called a community sponsorship scheme where a group of churches or a village or a synagogue could decide that they were going to sponsor and look after a number of refugees. Um, So that kind of gave the sponsorship idea, um, decided doing it on a community basis, whilst it sounds very good, would take such a long time to organise, that uh, we came up with the idea of putting the refugees in people's homes on the basis that British people would volunteer for it, and they did. More than 210,000 people put their names down. And that it was better for the families, who were predominantly women with young children, remember. Um, They were were better for them to be in someone's home because of the personal side of it. And not that it's a good thing, but at least they'd feel they were wanted and were with people that cared for them. The response to the Homes for Ukraine scheme was astounding. British people offered up their spare rooms en masse. But for the government, the mechanics of making all this actually happen were severe. Would-be hosts complained they were signing up and then heard nothing. Harrington says this is not surprising, given the scale of what they were trying to pull off. It was fraught with problems, obviously. For example, who are the people volunteering? Are they paedophiles, pimps, or just people on the make wanting a bit of money from the government where they haven't got proper proper accommodation? Um, are they people who have actually thought of the seriousness of having someone in their home? Because I've learnt in my Syrian experience that the refugee world brings out the best of people and the worst people. So sorting out who was suitable was quite a big thing. Then there's the question of the, of, of the refugees themselves. 
are they really Ukrainians? Because a lot of people want to come here. Do they qualify? Are they Ukrainian passport holders? And if they've got children, are they really their children? Or are they, again, part of some dreadful criminal human trafficking operation? So it's not quite as simple as it is on the surface. So there were quite a lot of problems, but it did have to be done quickly. We asked the local authorities to inspect the premises before anybody moved in, just to make sure that there was a room or two rooms, whatever they'd said. It wasn't sort of covered in running water down the walls or that, that kind of stuff. Getting anything done in Whitehall is hard enough, let alone a radical immigration scheme delivered at breakneck pace. How did they do it? I was able to put a cross-government team of civil servants together and I managed to get uh, a guy called Paul Morrison, if I could shout out for him, because he was responsible for the Syrian refugee programme. In true um, government style, no one had remembered that he was responsible for it and he was in a completely different job. So we managed to get him out of digital planning or whatever he was doing and he came and headed... So we'd had some experience. In the end... Michael Gove and I had the ear of Boris Johnson. And whatever anyone could have their views on Boris, and I could entertain people with Boris stories going back years, but he was determined that this would happen and therefore made it clear that I got the resources that I needed to do it. Around the UK, people were watching this all play out on their TV screens and wondering if they could help. It was very much in your face on the on the news, wasn't it? And it just was an awful, awful situation. And I suppose you, you could see all those massive um, queues of people coming out of Ukraine, you know, through Poland, you know, and all the family, you know, all of us were, like, emotionally affected and thinking, well, actually, what can we do? This is Tracy Higgins. She works in local education and lives in Marple with her husband Sam and two grown-up kids. We lived in a five-bedroom house, so we were using three of them. So we had spare rooms, so obviously that was really, really important. I think I was probably the instigator of it, because I'd like looked at the, the mechanisms to get in touch with somebody and, and make it all happen, but everybody was on board. The pairing of refugees and hosts happened kind of organically, especially in those early weeks and months. In Facebook groups and via hastily set up charity websites, those in need and those willing to help just found one another. They swapped messages, they filled in forms, and eventually they took a leap of faith. We were kind of one of the first families to do it, so we hadn't got a lot of information about how other people had, had done that. There was some on the internet and there were some, like, groups setting up, you know, Facebook groups and things. But it was really hard to navigate because you were very much on your own. So you were, like, joining groups to say we're, you know, willing to host. And then other people in Ukraine were having to kind of put, I would really like a host and somehow you had to connect and you had no idea who, who you might be connecting with. The, the person we ended up hosting, Tanya, was really the first person who said yes. Mm. We just went with, you know, honouring that really. Tanya was a great person to 
go through the process with because she speaks fluent English. Oh, that's not necessarily the case. No, it wasn't necessarily the case for a lot of people. So the paperwork became very much easier because we could do um, like a WhatsApp call and I could have things on my screen and I could read them to her and she would be able to give me clear answers. And I do believe where people had um, guests that had very limited English or no English at all, that was really, really difficult because you ended up having to fill in the paperwork as a host, whereas the information needed to come from the Ukrainian. Tracy's Ukrainian guest, Tanya, was in her late 20s and had lived abroad before. She'd been to university in Poland and had also spent a little time in the US. This kind of experience made all the difference in those crucial early days. We chatted on WhatsApp. You could hear when you were on the phone to her, the sirens going off. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were still um, bombs and things mm-hmm. being, missiles being shot down. But, yeah, she was a really great guest to have in the sense that, she, you know, she was able to uh, navigate her way around and things. Unsurprisingly, not everyone found navigating Britain straightforward. Just up the road from Tracy live a lovely couple called Chaz White and Christine Shepherd. They're the parents of one of my sister's best mates from school, Eddie. Hey, Eddie. But Eddie and his brother have grown up and moved out, meaning Chaz and Chris have rooms in their house to spare. They offered to take in not just one Ukrainian refugee, but a whole family of three. Well, first of all, they were different because they're Russian speakers rather than Ukrainian speakers. They're Russian speakers. Oh, that's interesting. We're sitting in Chaz and Chris's front room, drinking strong cups of tea and eating slices of Chris's awesome homemade ginger cake. They come from Donetsk. Um, They'd they'd already been displaced uh, once because they'd they'd had to move to Odessa. After the first invasion... Family of three. Yeah. Um, Mother, father and daughter who was 15 when she came here. When she came here to the UK. Their Ukrainian family moved out into private accommodation towards the end of last year, after 18 months or so sharing their home. Sitting in the quiet house now, it's hard to imagine three more people living there, with barely a word of English between them. How did they even talk to each other? We used the app didn't we? Yeah. Say we, hi. And it's very, very good, really. Excellent, yeah, it's, it's, excellent. Know, it does and live it, translation, doesn't yeah. it? Live translation, yeah. Without that, I think it would have been really... Oh, we would have struggled. We would have yeah, really struggled. struggled. Yeah, we you would. You know, would. particularly when you're dealing with bureaucracy and things, yeah. which is yeah. bad yeah. enough. But it meant early days, we were talking with Vika about Jane Austen, uh, yeah. weren't we, <laughs> using the app. I mean, I did English lessons with them. Fine, it was just with gender. Oh, you did it? You every, did every night, didn't so you? So we had an hour every night, did you, going through with it. This was you teaching? Yes, yeah. So we would go through and we would just talk and go through, yeah, whatever. And Are you a teacher by trade? I was an English teacher in a previous life. You were? Yeah. OK. Um, but I think it's just it just needs the practice, doesn't it? it do, yeah. Chaz and Chris show me the top floor of their home, where the Ukrainian family lived. There are two bedrooms up there, plus a bathroom, so they had some degree of independence. The teenage daughter often preferred not to leave her room. The father had health issues, which is why he was not conscripted to the front line. It sounds hard, but with their translation apps and with an awful lot of goodwill on both sides, 
the two families found a way of getting along. So eventually what, what sort of arose was that um, we would have... Everybody had breakfast whenever they were, whenever they were ready, tended not to be together for lunch, but we sat together for an evening meal. Mm. And and Vika insisted on doing most of the cooking. Did she? She said it is my therapy, mm. makes me feel normal. We had we in the end we had to say, look, Vika, we've got to cook on some days because I felt de-skilled to be <laughs> honest. I felt, well, I've forgotten how to do this. Well, we had a schedule, didn't we? We so, had a schedule. So it was yeah. actually scheduled. Yeah. In, yeah. Who was yeah. I think, oh, yeah, like a rotor almost. Yeah, but yeah. She, well, she did the the vast majority. She was of doing it five. Uh, so I did it one night. Chris she, was doing. Yeah. yeah, and she absolutely she did she did like cooking. Um, and so, so, did you suddenly find you're eating? Eastern European cuisine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so Vika's yeah, Vika's potato pie, especially the one with the fish in, absolutely lovely, wasn't oh, it? Oh, I put the recipe down. Oh, I think it's. Uh, let me add and that. She, she also she also made a, a special sauce with tahini and mayonnaise, which and a lot of garlic, which was also absolutely lovely. Um, not a lot of um, separate vegetables. Were there? No, no, no. no, and, no. and if we, if we said salad, we'll have some salad. That meant like an egg salad, like a, not not green salad. Yeah, and they were they were really pleased when they found a Polish shop so they yeah. could find something. And strangely enough, for Masha, when they found the Korean shop in Manchester, because she's very into manga and all Japanese things. And we had a didn't we have a lovely day for Masha's birthday? Well, Chris, you had the good idea of special treat out for yeah. a meal, didn't we? Well, her birthday last year coincided with Chinese New Year, so we went to the parade, and then we went to a Japanese restaurant uh, that had robot servers. <laughs> so she was, and, and it's, it's like a little cat shape, and it comes up with it with these with these stuff. And they made it. They made a, a mocktail. Uh, and it, that was a lovely day, it was wasn't really, it? Really good, that was it? a lovely day. That was probably our very best day overall. Yeah. Coming up in part two, what's it like being a Ukrainian with no English language skills, trying to navigate our GP services, or the universal credit system, or the Stockport weather? Stay with us. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes 
to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Modern life is rubbish, as Damon Albarn told us way back in 1993. And that was before the hellish rise of call centres, online forms and computer-says-no bureaucracy, which makes 21st century life in Britain such a treat. Now, imagine trying to navigate all of that if you've only just set foot in Britain for the very first time. And the only language you speak is Russian. But I mean, at first there was all the pressure to get them a bank account. That was a little bit of a, a nightmare because... Uh, trying to get a bank account set up for them, it really was stressful. People wanted it. You couldn't even set it up with the branch that was here. Here's Chaz and Christine again. Um, no, nobody would want to open it. It's all got to be done online. And, of course, translating it then into Russian on, on, you know, within the first 24 hours that was difficult, to say the least. Yeah. But we were helped out, weren't we? Because also that same day they were suddenly registered with the, uh, with the doctors oh, yeah. and, um, and declare any conditions. Well, of course, oh, God, yes. they'd brought a file through with um, Genia's conditions. Genia's and, condition. I mean, it right. was a, a folder wow. that thick and you had to declare and it all in, in all Russian. All in Russian. And then <laughs> Here you, you had to put this through. <laughs> and I was so lucky, so incredibly lucky. So I was facing this, how do you do it? And our friend uh, Nia, GP, happened to arrive for a cup of coffee. I said, Nia, I'll just look at this. And I mean, she got the three of them. We had to fill in the forms for all three, obviously, to set up the records. What's striking is how these hosts were essentially left to fend for themselves. The government vetted both parties at the start, sorted out the visas, and then set up payments of £300 a month, later rising to 500 to help each host family with their costs. And that was it. You kind of had to figure the rest out yourselves. So in Marple, at least, a kind of community self-help network began to spring up. Local people keen to offer a hand turned up in their droves. The first meeting was the biggest we ever had. And there would have been probably, I think there would have been between 40 and 50 in the first meeting. This is Aaron Thornley, a local councillor in Marple who helped coordinate meetings between local people who wanted to help. You'll have to excuse the background noise here. We met in a little cafe called Blueberries near his home. It was worth it for the homemade cake. It was quite a sad and sombre occasion, as you can imagine. There was a real feeling in the room about perhaps what the future might be. So the group became largely a group of people who were supporting Ukrainian people but weren't hosting them and and generally the hosts as well so that they could exchange ideas they would start talking about practicalities of like there were sort of there was there were helpers at the airport who might give them free sort of mobile sim cards and these kind of things were happening and then they were their first communications with the council and they were talking to each other about how you approach that, what they might do. And the information was invaluable, no doubt about it. Anyone who was going to be a new host, when they came along to the group, by the time they left, you know, they would have a very good understanding of what might happen, what support was available, what practical steps they should take to make sure that within the first two or three weeks they were getting paid some support money from the council, 
had a mobile phone set up, had them the, the Ukrainian people connected perhaps with the education system. You know, those kind of things were very important. Dozens of local people pitched in. Some, like Jane McLean, devoted seemingly endless hours to the cause. And it got to education, and I've worked in education all my life, near enough. So I put my hand up and I said, right, I'll do the education. So getting them to learn mm -hmm. English, I was going to organise that. Jane is an education worker and kind of a community activist who lives with her son in Marple. She helped run various weekly sessions for Marple's Ukrainian refugee community, which at its height numbered several dozen people. I asked on Facebook groups and I was really lucky because I got a few teachers that teach English as a second language that were available and offered to come and help. Right, for free. For free. Right. And then somebody else said, oh, my husband's a caretaker of a room. Uh, yeah, I can get that room for you. People donated things that we needed, you know, um, puzzles and games and for mm -hmm. the children. And, and we set off. And the churches were getting involved and they were... Um, collecting clothes and things right. and that. And we got lots and lots of volunteers. Tracy Higgins again. And um, we had lots of people who came, you know, teachers and teaching assistants and people who came and looked after the children whilst the adults were able to access some very practical uh, English lessons. And it was lovely when the children came in because they were all in schools but they were able to just come and be and play and speak Ukrainian or Russian. So it was really nice. We had a little Christmas party and things like that. But it was the, the whole point started with helping people access English and it ended up being a really good community. So through that, people did make connections and friends. They were learning and everything. And then that was going really well. Jane McLean. But there was other needs um, that they needed besides learning English. There was also that they needed support mentally, going to the job centre, just about anything. So I then started up another group on a Tuesday afternoon where they came and we did, we made bags for soldiers, we made um, bags for uh, soldiers in trenches, Bags for soldiers uh, in, arriving at hospital. Jane even travelled out to Ukraine herself last year to volunteer in one of the local hospitals that she and her group of refugees have been trying to help. While she was out there, she met the husband of one of the Ukrainian women she knows back in Marple. So I was in Lviv and he's in Lviv. And um, he came to the hotel where I was staying. To I had asked them, isn't it? I wanted to take for the father, and the children had done some drawings and nice. things. Yeah. So I took them. He came. I gave him a hug and I said, "This is from your family in the UK." And I gave him the gifts. He brought me gifts as well. And when I left, I hugged him and I went. When I sit next to your family, I hug him and I pass it on. <laughs> and the mother said to me. She contacted me that night and she said to me, my husband's not an emotional person, but when he left you, he was so emotional about your meeting. Jane says some of the Ukrainians themselves have also been back home over the past two years, mainly to visit the husbands or fathers or older family members 
they left behind. You know, they worry. I mean, yeah. a lot of their family are elderly in their 80s and they've left them behind. Yeah. And they've tried to persuade them to come, but they won't. They say, that we live and we die here. This is our country and they won't come. Everybody seems to be under the age of 40. Mm. Who comes? Yeah. That's interesting. Other, unless they've come with their mother. I know two that have come with their... Their, their mothers have come, but generally they're, they're all under 40. What do you think it is that they've found hardest? Was it, is it a language mainly that's where it's been a challenge or just the things they've experienced that mean they've come with a lot of um, emotional I think it's what they've left behind because they've left people, they've left their jobs, they've had good jobs. You know, I've got to say, most of the people here are probably middle class, so they've got to have money to be able to get out. Several of the other organisers I spoke to made this point too. Most of the Ukrainians in Marple, at least, seem to have come from middle-class backgrounds, meaning they had a decent education behind them and sometimes decent language skills too. This phenomenon will surely have helped make the Homes for Ukraine scheme such a success. But that doesn't mean the refugees haven't faced endless challenges in their two years in Britain. They still just constantly come to me and their go-to. If they've got a problem, they come to me, wherever. Whether it's something to do with school, they want me to go to the job centre with them, a medical problem, whatever, they'll come to me and ask and say, can you help? Is there anything you can do? What, you know, how can you support us? And basically that's what... I do. What's a recent problem someone's come to you with? That's, that's uh, bullying at school. Oh, really? Oh, that's horrible. Um, yeah, uh, and the mother's been really upset about mm. it. And a child was kept getting ill, physically ill. And then she received notification from Stockport Council um, trying to find her because he hadn't been in school. And the biggest thing about it was he was being bullied. Mm. And I went, Nah, I'm not having that in your way. Don't worry, you won't be paying nothing. Mm-hmm. So I I uh, dictated an email for her. Luckily, this woman's really good. In, her English is, is fantastic. And um, she and it went and sent it to the school. And with two days, she was in a meeting and they moved in his form and everything. So, I, I mean, I've worked in education. I've got some with special needs. I've fought for all sorts of stuff. So when it comes to this, I'm like, mm, no. Getting Ukrainian kids, particularly the older ones, settled into local schools has clearly been challenging. Nobody I spoke to felt that this has been handled terribly well. It's kind of small school. I don't think lots of uh, people from abroad come in there, so they don't have a lot of experience with that. This is Katya, the teenage Ukrainian we heard from a little earlier. But I was asking for the extra time. Um, I want to get the, the good grades for the future, but in my circumstances it's kind of hard. And the support lessons wasn't great with uh, English, GCSE and everything, so I failed my English. Uh, for the rest I got um, decent grades, I would say. Right. Yeah, uh, but what weird, I was requesting the extra time for all of my subjects more than three times, more than five times, I would say. They said, like, there is no way that you can do this. I mean, high school is hard enough, right? Trying to settle into a new school in a foreign country with a load of 15-year-olds when you can't speak the language was about as much fun as it sounds. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad 
there was a girl in, in my high school who is also from Iran and she'd been here for five years so she was already with a good level of English but she understood what is my situation English people don't understand that no. uh, lots of English kids was very not nice to me oh most likely they was just ignoring me which thank you to them <laughs> some of them was saying something um, I didn't understand, so I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, but but this girl from Iran, because she understood the situation, she just took me under her wing, oh, <laughs> I would nice. say. Chaz and Christine have their own grim stories to tell about their teenage guests' experiences at a local school. Stories about a lack of support, lack of understanding, maybe a lack of expertise. Stories like this. That was a horrible day, wasn't there? That... Mm -hmm. She, she came home in tears and there had been um, all of a sudden in class sirens, the sirens go in fire alarm, yeah. fire alarm and you think it's a fire drill but in fact the kids were told to get under the desk it was, a, 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 an, intruder, it was an intruder drill she had no idea oh but partly God. because she wasn't there all the time because she was only attending for certain lessons by that time and partly because nobody had bothered to explain to her. So you can imagine how traumatising this is for a child who's had bombs dropped yeah, on her. Yeah, she had been dealing with real sirens. I mean, um, she was the, the war child, wasn't she? Yeah, and you know, you just think, why did nobody think? Because there were like three or four people who were meant to be sort of... Yeah, that was the problem, needed, wasn't there? To be honest, it needed one person yeah. to actually be a yeah. point of contact. Yeah, but, so, you know, one... one yeah, that was, one that was a problem. It was a shame. It was a shame for a really... I heard a few stories like this in Marple last week. A grumpy bus driver who made an unpleasant comment. A school which was thoughtless in the way it handled the arrival of a war child. Even Ukrainians turning on other Ukrainians over their stance on the war. But overall, it's hard to see the Homes for Ukraine scheme as anything other than a triumph. Clearly some Ukrainians had bad experiences with their hosts, and vice versa. But Chaz and Christine and Tracy Higgins, and the other hosts I heard about, are hugely positive about their experiences. And most of the Ukrainians still in Marple have now moved out of their host's homes and are living independently, like Marina and Katya. And we was like a, a little children <laughs> who didn't know any language, didn't know the culture, we was just lost, honestly, lost children. And then we started to grow and learning the language, started to talk for a bit, and then more and more and more, learning more. And then after the year, yeah. <laughs> uh, we finally grew, grew up to the university stage, I would say, <laughs> I moved out. <laughs> yes, I understand. For many Ukrainians, finding their own accommodation has been the hardest challenge of all. This is Britain in 2024, after all. There's a housing crisis going on, in case you hadn't heard. We haven't built enough homes for the past 50 years. It's hard for everyone. Here's Chaz and Christine. We started thinking about it when 12 months was up mm -hmm. and we were kind of aiming for getting, getting Masha settled into college, yeah. weren't we? And, and we, we thought things might go, and naively, thought things might go quickly then. Once she was settled in college, we could, we could start looking at homes and you know mm. and maybe within the within the month they, they mm. we would find somewhere um now yeah. um with stockport's help it was it was end of november before they, mm. they got somewhere 
and we wouldn't without their help we wouldn't have found anywhere it was it they was visited difficult. about was it seven eight or nine? it was yeah it was seven or eight or nine properties yeah and saw. honestly god some of them were awful really? oh god i went with vika to look at somewhere and you open the back door and the steps down and the two state agents said oh don't go down there the cellar's flooded and you're thinking well yeah well you want you want people to live here Chaz and Christine's Ukrainian guests eventually found a place to stay in Marple after nearly six months of hunting. They're full of praise for the way Stockport Council helped them get to that point. Marina and Katja and Tracy Higgins' guest Tanya, they're all now settled independently too. But plenty of others have been less fortunate. Last weekend, the local government association, which speaks on behalf of local councils in England and Wales, one that 9,000 of Britain's 200,000-plus Ukrainian refugees have now presented as homeless. For the most part, their relations with their hosts had just broken down and they were unable to find alternate accommodation. Tracy says those who have succeeded in finding homes have often needed extra help from their hosts along the way. The route to that was really hard, but just because... My friend has a flat in Marple and it was up for rent and because she also would be somebody who would want to support people. Mm. Uh, And the the council wouldn't do guarantors or anything like that. I've done the guarantor. um, But again, if you didn't have a host who couldn't do that, then... Do you see what I mean? So there's lots of things. So it's almost like you'd do for your own children. Mm. You've got to have that investment in that. So to get the step up to independence, it's really hard. But Tanya is, you know, contributing to society, paying a tax, part of the community, yeah. happy to pay the rent, but needed some step up to be able to, to, be be able to do that, yeah. Position. The sacrifices these hosts have made, the time and the personal space they've given up, is extraordinary. But it's important to remember as well that Marple is a pretty affluent town. There are lots of large houses, lots of middle-class people who do have the resources to help. Another, more unexpected reason that I think Homes for Ukraine has proved such a success has been social media. Time and again I heard about hosts putting out requests for help on Facebook groups and immediately being assisted with whatever they needed from members of the community Furniture, home adjustments, advice, teaching support. WhatsApp groups have been a lifeline for the many Ukrainians dotted around the area. Aaron Thornley, the local councillor I met in that cafe, he set up an online fundraiser to help pay for spectacles and train tickets and other expensive essentials the Ukrainians have needed. None of this would have been straightforward without the technology we now have. Social media has been amazing. There's 404 members of the Facebook group and it started on the 16th of March just so you know. Social media has been been you know a massive tool that we've used. We've used local Facebook sites. There's a WhatsApp group um, for just for the Ukrainian people which I I am in as a supporter um, but it's just run by the Ukrainian people. Sometimes they speak in Ukrainian on the, the WhatsApp group, sometimes they don't. 
a, a, a Ukrainian refugee who arrived within the last month joined that group yesterday. So you, you can see that that's still going strong. What the future holds now for Britain's Ukrainian refugee community is far from clear. Some have returned home already, unable to settle, desperately missing their families and their war-torn homeland. Many are in private accommodation now, some waiting to return home whenever peace arrives, others dreaming of a new life now at this end of Europe. This week, the UK government extended their visas for a further 18 months, while, more controversially, making it way harder for those already here to bring over family or friends. Back at Marina and Catcher's flat, we finished the Ukrainian banquet and moved on to herbal tea. Marina apologises there's no vodka, but neither she nor Katya really like to drink. It's midday, so I'm kind of cool with that. Katya, now 16 years old, and speaking English fluently and loving life at a sixth form college in Stockport, does not sound desperate to return to Ukraine. She's got to go in a minute to meet her friend. She's been through so much, but honestly, she just seems like any other smart, bright kid in this country, seeing her mates, trying to get on. I absolutely love this college and and because it's like a, a new start with when I already had a my English level mm. uh, my, my English la language uh, I could I could show my personality finally mm. because I was like a ghost because I couldn't talk uh, people would think like why would I be friends with her because she's she, can, she can't talk mm. she's not interesting actually now I, I got a bit of fear like oh I'm not interesting to the people uh, but it's a different thing. <laughs> yeah, but I found lots of friends and absolutely love this college. I tried to ask Katya about her plans for the future, but the truth is, she's still trying to figure things out. She was 12 years old when the COVID pandemic hit in early 2020, and nothing has been remotely normal for her since. I didn't have a time to think about anything, no. to be honest, because it was COVID. Then we finally got on the studies and you're kind of trying to concentrate and then the war and then moving here and then started to learn another language. So I wasn't really studying and looking what I want to do myself. Of course, you're just trying to survive. I just try to survive, to be honest. <laughs> Her mother, Marina, on the other hand, definitely wants to go back, but not yet. And because I work in... in um, uh, marble. Mm -hmm. I feel happy. Oh, that's nice. Yes. Yeah. I, I do not good job. Yeah. Simple job. Mm -hmm. I clean and dishes. I appreciate. I appreciate because I don't sit in my home. I not uh, crying. I always busy. I always speaking with uh, with people. These people really kind. I happy. I happy working my job. I happy being in my job. My boss like me. I like my boss. Uh, my boss ask your job is good. I want to make my uh, job better and better. Yeah, I, I, I like your country. Well, I nice like your government. Mm. I like your people. I like weather. Weather? Are you sure? Yes, I, I like, like weather. weather. <laughs> because in the Ukraine weather is summer hotter. Hottest and and uh, winter really this just uh, cold in Ukraine coldest 
Okay. <laughs> This is beautiful. All right. I like rain, windy, <laughs> everything like. <laughs> you're in the right place. Yeah, she, she likes yeah, it. Yeah, you're not so sure. I, I like um, summer here. I'm the warmth lover. <laughs> I love summer here, but not the winter. Yeah. I'm with Katya on this, by the way. But Marina, even if she does claim to like the Stockport weather, she still dreams of going home. Or, even better, to the beautiful Black Sea port of Odessa, just down the road from where they used to live. I have... Uh dream when I uh, finish war, I want to live nearby sea in Odessa. Mm-hmm. So she How lovely. She wants to buy a house in the seaside in Odessa. In Odessa. Yes. Mm-hmm. I have dream invite everybody how is met here. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. We can have all the marble people there. Mm-hmm. Mm. That would be really nice. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please spread the word, follow our podcast, and maybe even leave us a nice review. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to the old episodes, which for the most part are not time sensitive. I did a great interview with Alf Dubbs, the Labour peer, who actually came over on one of those child refugee trains from Eastern Europe in 1938, back in season 12. My producer this week was Artemis Irvin of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. Aggie will be back with you next week, and we'll see you then. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.